everybody. It's me, Emmett, your nuclear barbarian, here with another episode of the Nuclear Barbarians podcast. Today is an exciting day because I have one of my favorite people on the podcast. I have Meredith Angwin, author, thoughtful energy, writer, talk giver, etc. Hello, Meredith. Welcome. Oh, hello, Emmett. Very glad to be here. Always like to see you. Yeah, likewise. So we have a lot to get into today about the grid and your writing on the grid, and especially because we are walking headlong into an energy crisis about what we might expect out of this winter or problems that we see happening right now. But first, I'd like for the audience to get to know you a little bit. What's your background? How did you get to the point where you wrote a whole book on problems in the U.S. electrical grid? Well, I, I started out, I, I, I wanted to be a scientist and I wanted to be a chemist. And in chemistry, I became interested in mineral chemistry and I was pursuing my um, PhD in that. I, I have a master's, I didn't, I didn't complete the PhD. But at any rate, that led me to being interested in geothermal energy and to working with utility research on how to get geothermal energy to work better. And we, we did a lot of corrosion and corrosion control issues and pollution control issues, which somehow segued into me doing pollution control and corrosion control issues, especially pollution control with gas turbines, which segued to me getting a, a job at the Electric Power Research Institute as one of the first women project managers back in geothermal. And then after that, moving over to nuclear. So by that time, I'd been in almost every possible uh, part of the utility industry. And I became very in favor of nuclear also. When I sort of semi-retired from California to uh, Vermont, because our kids live in the East Coast, I began doing other things, including doing an energy blog. And... I was in favor of the local nuclear plant, Vermont Yankee. I still am, unfortunately, it's closed. But when I was doing my energy blog, a man who read it said to me, oh, uh, I noticed that you cover grid issues once in a while, which was really true, once in a while. <laughs> and he said, why don't you join the consumer liaison group of the grid operator and even, even run for the coordinating committee of that group? I said, uh, really? <laughs> I didn't even know our grid operator had a consumer liaison group. Right. It's not exactly advertised. There's not announcements in the paper, consumer liaison group meeting tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, it was just kind of like this thing that if someone who knew about it would tell you about it. And anyway, so the long and short of it is I did join the, the consumer liaison group and its coordinating committee and got elected to be on this coordinating committee. And um, then I really began learning about the grid. And I was really kind of shocked because it was just how an ISO new, how a re, re, regional transmission organization, an RTO, makes decisions is so odd and so convoluted. And, and I would try and tell my friends about it. Well, that didn't work because I would have to spend half an hour explaining something before I could be telling them. <laughs> so the net result is I decided 
the things that I was seeing were things that were making the grid more fragile, making it more likely that the grid would have rolling blackouts. That, and, and, and I wanted to write about this in a way that people could learn about it without having to sit there for 20 minutes while I got to the point. You know, <laughs> in other words, because, you know, let's say I said to you, capacity markets don't help. You might say, really? What's the capacity market? And, you know, it's just too much. It's all too much. I mean, if you read about what happened in Texas, there'll be somebody saying, well, the thing is, they have an energy only market. If they had a capacity market, if I have to, if I want to rebut that, it'll take me 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, I guess that's how I got into writing this book because I wanted to write about it, but I realized that unlike other things that can be done sort of short form, that is, you know, write a blog post, write a magazine article. Mm -hmm. Writing about the grid has so many layers of, of band-aids about the policy. The policy is just a conglomeration of this on top of that, on top of this, on top of that. Oh, that went too far this way. So we'll add something that will bring it back the other way. Oh, whoops, gosh, let's try this again. And and you can't, you can't tell a coherent story about it. I mean, it's really impossible to tell a coherent story about it. I did my best to do so in my the book, Shorting the Grid, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid. And what I wanted to show in that is that nobody is responsible in an RTO area, a mm -hmm. so-called deregulated area, for uh, reliability. There's just no responsibility for reliability. The buck of reliability doesn't stop on anyone's desk. Nobody will be fined for lack of reliability. And basically, what, what, what do we have? Poor reliability. We're, and we're, it's getting worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that that story starts with somebody commenting on your blog, like, hey, why don't you show up to this thing? And it created uh, a whole <laughs> new vista from which to view huge problems with fundamental infrastructure. I invited a friend of mine from Vermont to come to the um, one of the meetings with me. And he mm -hmm. said something really clever. He said, at the end of the meeting, he went back, he said to me, Meredith, I feel like a hobbit who just discovered there's a world beyond the Shire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that you talk about in the book is that there's really two grids, right? There's sort of the grid at the infrastructural level, which generates, transmits and distributes electricity. And then there is the like legal market framework of the grid on top of it. And they have some correspondence. Am I getting that right? Yeah, I, 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 I call it the physical grid and the policy grid. Yeah, exactly. The, pro the problems, now the policy grid also includes how generators get paid. I mm -hmm. mean, payment is an important part of policy. And so the, the policy grid is where most of the problems come in. And uh, to me, that was a little bit difficult because as a physical chemist, while I'm not an electrical engineer, I am very attuned to physical problems, to mm -hmm. physical issues, you know, corrosion, you know, transmission loss, whatever. Yeah. And, all of, and all of a sudden, I found myself reading FERC orders and, 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 uh, 
and, and, and jump balls, which is when you present two things to FERC at the same time and they're supposed to choose. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh, this is, this is a different world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could tell us, like, what's different about this RTO ISO structure compared to how we used to do things in large parts of the country? Very simply, I would say simply that in the old days, there was a, a sort of a, a planning system and, and the utility was vertically integrated, which meant that it owned generating units or parts of generating units if there was a big one in a small utility. And it was responsible for soup to nuts. It was responsible for the, the generating unit not going down too much and for transmission and distribution not going down too much and for billing you. And then if, if you were impoverished, it would be responsible for, for you know, some kind of low cost arrangement or, or whatever. And, and so in other words, from the, from the generator to the, to the issues of the homeowner, it, it, you knew what was who was in charge, and so did it get to do anything it wanted? No, it it it, it was overseen. Often it was overseen quite well by the state public utility commission and FERC. FERC being the national organization that had certain rules that all the states had to follow. But people thought, well, this is 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 not good because the way. The Public Utility Commission and the Vertically Integrated Utilities work is that the utility builds things and the Public Utilities Commission makes sure that it doesn't go bankrupt. In other words, it gets, it gets paid for what it builds and so forth, and it gets a rate of return on its capital investments. So the rate of return is fixed by the Public Utilities Commission. And the rate of return will be dependent on the power being reliable. If if the utility ends up with a lot of, of outages, then the Utility Commission will fine it, and it will not have a good rate of return. So the utility has a strong incentive to build things in a way that's very reliable and Mm -hmm. therefore the power will keep being gone. And to some extent, it has an incentive to overbuild and to gold plate, okay? Mm -hmm. But all of these are in service ultimately, not just of a higher rate of return, but of reliability. There's an incentive to reliability, which supposedly could lead to higher costs for the ratepayer. Now, it turns out that we've moved away from that. People said, oh, we've got to get the, the, the noble hand of the market or the invisible hand, the invisible noble hand of the market <laughs> in here, and, and, and that'll lower the costs. And um, it didn't. I, I have in the book, I have four examples of people who did analysis of costs in academic analysis of costs in vertically integrated versus RTO areas, and the RTO areas were always higher. Mm-hmm. And of course, people, three of the four basically said, 
well, they're higher because they're RTO areas. And one of the four said, well, we don't really know. They seem to be higher and they're RTO areas, but we can't really, we can't really put it that way. Maybe the non-RTO areas have more inexpensive coal, so we're not going to, we're mm-hmm. not going to even go there. But nobody says that the RTOs save money. <laughs> the right. only people who say that are people who are participating in the markets and who can say, oh, you know, the the cost in the auctions has gone down. That's saving money. No, it isn't. It isn't because you have to, the person who gets the bill at home, they're paying the whole system cost, not the cost of the auction. And there, I could go on for a while, but basically there are many things in the system costs. Let me give you an example of, of many things in the system costs. Okay. Okay. Just uh, one example. Let's say you have a, a, area with a lot of um, wind turbines and the wind turbines bid into the auctions at zero cents or minus two cents per kilowatt hour. And since there are a lot of them, they kind of drive down the prices in the auctions. The highest price isn't as high as it would be if the wind turbines were there. And someone says, look, the wind turbines are saving money for the consumer. But they don't show to you a couple of other things. The first is the wind turbines need 100% backup. In other words, if in a regular Mm -hmm. grid, you say any power plant can go down, but no power plant is is designed to be more than 10% of the grid. So if we have a grid with 20% more power plants on it, than is you than is required at the top, then we have a good reserve margin here, twenty percent. But if you have wind turbines, you've got to have a hundred percent backup for them because they can go down, and then you have to have something that comes up. It's mm-hmm. not a matter of it can happen that at the peak we could end up losing a, a power plant that's ten percent of our our grid, so we better have 20% more power plants on the grid than we would have otherwise had. No, if you've got 40% wind turbines on the grid, you have to have 40% power plants that'll kick in when the wind turbines aren't available. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, the other thing is their common mode failure, right? Usually if there's a, a wind dearth, yeah. if, if there's a static weather system, it's not just for one wind turbine. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, the UK has experienced that all year, and now they're running into troubles this winter. That's part of what's happening over there. But I also wanted to ask about, I mean, there are so many issues, like just even with that, that there are, there's no real consideration of like outside cost or externalities or anything that happens here. But one of the things that people bring up is they say, well, that's just why we need batteries. Like we oh, just yeah. need batteries. We could back it up with batteries. So I was wondering if you tell us like, What's your take on the battery response to that? Well, I, well, I don't think it's going to happen. And I, and the reason is that batteries are basically too small and too expensive. And mm. and, and you know maybe that'll change. Someone will say, oh, it's going to change. I don't think it is. As a chemist, I think we're doing pretty well on optimizing batteries. But I, I certainly can't say we'll never make a breakthrough. We could. But that's the word, could. Mm-hmm. In other words, everybody wants to tell you about the could grid. Mm-hmm. 
the word that could happen if we had enough batteries and they were inexpensive enough. But we don't have enough batteries and they're unlikely to have enough because they're not inexpensive enough. Mm. The biggest battery system that I know about is 150 megawatts and it can put out approximately 200 megawatt hours. Now, my little local nuclear plant was closed down because, well, there were many people who were against it, Mm -hmm. but the official reason it was closed down, it it was too small to be cost effective. It was 620 megawatts and it could run for 18 months without a stop. Wow. So, So compare that. And as a matter of fact, it did several times. And, and, and those of us who loved it were always sending them a little note saying, congratulations on your breaker-to-breaker run, you know, yeah. stuff like that. But, but most people were completely oblivious to Vermont Yankee just had a breaker-to-breaker run where it didn't, it, didn't, it didn't have to go offline for 18 months. I mean, they were oblivious totally. But at any rate, what I'm trying to say is if you look at – 150 megawatts that can provide 200 megawatt hours. And you're saying, this is our biggest battery. It's going to really be a help in backing up the grid. And meanwhile, on the actual grid, and New England is not a particularly big grid. It's not tiny. It's right. not, you know, it's, it's not a particularly big grid, you know, uh, and on a big, on our grid, 700 megawatt hours was like, I'm sorry, 620 megawatts for 18 months wasn't enough to be cost effective. So what do you think 200 megawatt hours is going to be? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other issue that it seems to me is that the idea that storage is the same thing as generation. Yeah. People don't, don't. Don't get that. I think the thing is that most of us have throwaway batteries. I mean, let's face it. My friend Adrian refers to it as Rube Goldberging the grid, yes. where it's like, oh, okay, the wind's gone, so we need to bring on all these batteries. But then the solar's gone, so now we have to bring on even more gas. And it's like you never know what to expect because each thing has this hidden impact on another part of the grid, right. even down to more traditional generators wearing out their component parts, trying to keep up with the unreliability of renewables built out on the grid. And one of the things that you bring up is how the auction house and an RTO is structured so that it advantages renewables and natural gas. Yes, it does. Right? And I was wondering if you could explain that for us just a little bit. Okay. First of all, they're, they're, uh, on, on our grid, there's uh, two auctions, two mm-hmm. major auctions. One of them is an auction that takes place every five minutes and you're selling kilowatt hours. And the other is an auction that takes place every three years and you're selling kilowatts or megawatts installed. So the megawatts installed one is a capacity auction. And the kilowatt hour one is the kilowatt hour. When we turn on a light, what we're getting is kilowatt hours, not capacity. But what happened was that people noticed, or even perhaps designed to understand before noticing, that if you just had a kilowatt hour auction, 
which is what Texas has, uh, mm. then you would find yourself with plants that were only used part of the time, not making enough money to keep themselves up. The owners would say, yeah, I have this plant, but I don't know how many hours it's going to run, what I'll be paid for those hours, and exactly how much do you expect me to invest in maintenance under these circumstances? I think I'll take my plant and go home. <laughs> and so the purpose of the capacity auction was to keep those plants uh, on the grid. But the capacity auction also has the effect of advantaging those plants. And so for example, let's say you have a gas plant and it, it, it's gonna bid in in a kilowatt hour only auction. It'll have to bid in enough money to keep itself on the grid. But if it's got capacity payments, it will get more then it'll often get more than half of its money through those capacity payments. So it can bid in comparatively low to the grid. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you look around at how this all works out, I have a section in the book called selling kilowatt hours is a losing game. Mm -hmm. If you're selling kilowatt hours, if you're trying to make a living as a power plant by selling kilowatt hours, which is after all what people use, Right. You are going to lose money because the 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 prices on the grid will be driven down by the combination of renewable plants that actually don't need a penny from the grid to keep going because they have so many subsidies. Mm -hmm. So they can bid in at zero or even at I'll pay you two cents to take my power. And gas plants that they they bid in, but they're only bidding in the extra money they need on top of their 50% uh, of their expenses paid by the capacity market. Right. So if you're trying to compete with subsidies and plants that are getting most of their money from the capacity market by selling kilowatt hours, it's, you're on a way to lose. You mm -hmm. will lose. Mm -hmm. And that's what, one of the reasons that the plants that run most of the time go off the grid. So let, they, they retire. Mm -hmm. They just retire. Yeah, they can't make money. They can't make money, so they, they're, 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 they close. And uh, as I said at the beginning of my book, I, I, in the beginning of my book, I, I tried to explain why I named it Shorting the Grid. Well, of course, part of the name mm -hmm. is, is kind of a pun on short-circuiting. I mean, I get that part. That's what I thought it would be memorable and so forth. <laughs> but the other part is that I was trying to echo The Big Short. Because in The Big Short, which is a book I've reread several times and watched <laughs> the movie several times, because it struck me as such a model for so many different types of things that go wrong, okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, just an amazing model. And in the big short, the value of the mortgage, it was about the, the mortgage market and the, the liar loan mortgages and all mm -hmm. the other non-conforming mortgages that 
that, that were out there and how they were built up in tiers of, of units. And, and even though every mortgage in the unit probably wouldn't be paid back, the whole unit was, was rated AAA. I mean, all this stuff. But what it turned out is that the low quality mortgages were very valuable. And the high quality mortgages were, were, so, were valuable too, but not particularly more valuable, probably less valuable. And similarly on the grid, the low quality uh, power plants, and I'm, I'm sorry if people are gonna be offended at this, but in my opinion, a power plant that goes on and off when it wants to and doesn't notice whether there's requirements for power on the grid, that is an intermittent power plant is low quality. It mm -hmm. doesn't help the grid very much. It has to be backed up by a plant that you can control. So the low quality, but the low quality power plants are the ones that are guaranteed to make money. Mm -hmm. It's upside down. Reliability is not a way to make money. And, and I think also part of it's the volatility seems to be good for the secondary markets, because if it's just going to be steady state and show up all the time, then there's really nothing to have a secondary market on in the way that they're structured now. I also think that part of what's happening is I, I liked your idea that the big short is sort of this model because I've been thinking something similarly about like ESG is that it has like these sort of elements of it gives me like notes of some prime mortgage crisis because people are like, oh, well, they're going to be crappy investments or who knows how they work, but like that's fine. But they forget that ESG also means like disinvestment from stable power sources, even if you don't like those power sources, like um, yes. gas or coal or something like that. And that uh, 60 hertz is 60 hertz. You know, the grid needs what it needs to stay alive. Like rationing a grid, it's just rolling blackouts. It's that's not, right. it's not like that's, that's how you ration a grid is you just have blackouts and brownouts and there's no like long-term concern for that. But also, and I know we've talked about this before, there's just like structural irresponsibility here, right? Because yeah. it's who's on the hook for this, right? Because it seems to me the argument goes or the way that it's built goes that you can't have a reliable backup on site because that would be unfair in the um, structure of the auction house or something like that. I remember that you called it in the book, like the name that fuel problem or something. Yes, well, you can't. What happened was that um, our grid operator, ISO New England, I think very, very highly of the people who work there. Mm -hmm. I, you know, whether the, the RTO system is a mess, but, you know, they're, they're in their kitchen to make it at least reasonable. Mm -hmm. for, well, they look forward at the amount of natural gas fired plants that are on the grid and the number of plants with fuel on site, such as coal plants and nuclear plants that were closing down. And they said, we aren't going to have the kind of resource adequacy we need in a cold snap. Because in the cold snap, those natural gas plants won't be able to get natural gas because the houses have priority to get natural gas. So houses have priority. If it's, if it's 20 below at night, the houses will be using a lot more natural gas than it's 20 above at night. That's just the way it goes. And therefore, 
while the power plant could get enough natural gas through the pipeline when it's 20 above, at 20 below, it won't. So the power plant will go offline. So they said, well, we, we know how to fix this. Many of the natural gas power plants are dual fired. That is, they can burn natural gas or they can they have other nozzles and they can shoot oil in or generally distill that oil. I mean, not not bunker C or anything. Right. But anyway, they 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 can all you need to do is store some oil there and they can they can go. And so the grid operator came up with what they called the winter reliability program. The natural gas power plants that were dual fired had to bid in, they always were bidding in, how inexpensive a set of oil they could hope to obtain. And if they, 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 their bid was chosen, then ISO New England would guarantee them that amount of money. And if they didn't use the oil, they got the money anyway. And if they did use the oil, then they would they would pro they probably wouldn't need the money because they'd be paid so much by the grid uh, for the electricity. So anyway, it was all it was all all set up that way. And and it wasn't just that uh, oil could bid in, bill in bid in. I have to tell you that demand response could always bid into that. The mm. thing is, demand response means I'll go offline if you want me to. And the number of companies that really want that want to go offline for a small amount of money when it's 20 below, it's not big. So, <laughs> so really very few, they got very few demand response bids. I don't remember what it was in the book, but I think they ended up spending like 20 million on oil and, and, and 40,000 on demand response. I mean, it was incredibly disparate numbers, hmm. uh, but it wasn't just oil. But the thing is, oil is what, what was the useful thing and that's what been in. So anyway, FERC looked at this situation and said, well, we're giving you three years for this. We understand that you see there's a crisis. You need to have this because otherwise your grid will go down. We get it. But you've got three years to get over this buying oil stuff and set up a market mechanism which is fair to all the different kinds of, mm -hmm. of power plants because what you're doing now is you're giving advantages to oil and we don't like that. We don't allow that. Right. You're an RTO. You can't give an advantage to oil. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they shut down that system. That, 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 uh, even though that our grid during the 2018 2019 holiday cold snap was running 30% on oil. This was not a trivial thing. This was not a marginal amount of oil being used at some obscure power plant. This is the grid running 30% on oil. Mm -hmm. And that oil that was used was uh, through the ISO New England Winter Reliability Program. FERC just shut it down. And what do you think this means in terms of FERC's prioritization of reliability. Right, yeah. I mean, it's basically, it's not a priority. It is, it's not a priority. It's off the table. They have other priorities instead. It's not even that reliability seems to be like subservient to others. It's that it isn't the motivating Oh, it's, it's not motivating. Yeah, for them. I mean, that seems to be like the difference between the things I see. I mean, right now it seems like there is actually some sort of fight happening between FERC heads 
about what to do with RTOs and whether we should have more or not and whether they're good in general and like what we're going to do with like coal and stuff. Watching earlier this year, maybe a couple months ago, I was watching Joe Manchin and I think Ed Barrasso have a committee hearing with members of FERC. And I think two of them, one of them was ambivalent. Another one was like pretty old RTO. And then another one was basically like, if we did the clean energy performance program in West Virginia, it would be apocalyptic for West Virginia. <laughs> and then one guy said that the, the clean energy performance program would be like dropping an H-bomb in our current electricity <laughs> markets, which I thought was astounding to hear someone say. But you can still, especially with FERC alumni from the last couple decades, when you compare what they're saying to what NERC is saying, and NERC was formed after the 65 Eastern Interconnection blackout, and yes. it's meant it really values reliability more than many other things. There are two totally different timbers about the problems we're facing in our energy sector. Oh, yes. You know, they're the, very concerned with what's happening. Yes, but you know, one of the things that um, happened after I wrote the book was that people uh, would write to me and say, hey, you forgot about NERC. You forgot about putting NERC in. And I said, well, the trouble is that NERC absolutely tries to review reliability. And, 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 and it'll even say, you're not being reliable here. You don't have enough reserve. Mm -hmm. uh, you, don't have, you don't have a high enough margin reserve. And you know what happens after that in an RTO? Absolutely nothing. And, and yeah. the trouble is that if I, if I wrote that in the book, then I would have to do a research project called NERC suggestions and which RTOs ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's also because NERC is, I think, well, NERC is in a governmental body the way that FERC is, right? Like NERC makes suggestions, but it can't crack the whip the way FERC can. Yeah, that's true. They can't. But I think that I, I am not going to go there because I think NERC is actually a part of FERC in some in some in some mm. aspects. And, and 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 as I say, when I, I began looking and I began looking at, at NERC, it seemed to me that uh, everything I would hear about NERC was some kind of Monday morning quarterbacking. We're like, yeah, well, yeah, that happened. And we told you. <laughs> I, didn't you notice? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you brought up responses to the book because my next question was going to be like, what have the responses been like and what have you learned since publishing? Well, well, the responses have been very, very positive. People have really liked the book. People have people who work in 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 balancing authorities and stuff have written me to thank me for writing the book because nobody knows what's going on and mm -hmm. you know and i mean these are all these are all on like twitter or email i mean they don't they, sure. if you work at a balancing authority you don't write hey i'm really delighted that i finally read meredith's book in in public you know yeah you're not placing pieces in the, the new york times praising no. the book that's yeah. right that's right so but at any rate I was really pleased to see how many people really liked the book. And, and also, I was really pleased at how, how many people wanted to get in touch with me, wanted me mm -hmm. to speak to their class, to speak to their group. I've spoken to an amazing number of groups, including the Sierra Club, one group in the Sierra Club in Maine. And I mean, it was just, it's been, to me, to be asked to be speak to them, 
Sierra Club since I'm a well-known nuclear supporter and is amazing. But the thing about the book is I really, the Shorting the Grid book, is I really try to be in my own little way, not like FERC, but fuel neutral. I was just trying to explain how the grid works, how different types of power plants interact with the grid mm-hmm. and so forth. And, 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 and it's something people just don't know much about. Right. And uh, so I was really pleased at, at the number of groups that have asked me to speak and uh, the reviews on, on, on Amazon. And it's, it's been, and it's been very nice. On the other hand, I think that, I think that it's also making me some enemies, Mm. but I mean, I don't worry about that too much because I'm a retired person. I mean, what are they going to do? Fire me. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm a grandmother. I, I live out here with my husband. I write mm-hmm. books. I, I, you know, but, you know, th- there's this whole, uh, whole bunches of people who really don't want anything to do with me. And mm-hmm. uh, not that I'm wanting anything to do with them, but in many cases, I acknowledge that they know something about the grid. Mm-hmm. They just have such a strong agenda. Mm-hmm about the kind of power plants that should be on it, which are renewables, that they can't see anything else as a valid discussion of it. Yeah. I mean, the, real, the endless discussion of the grid is how to get, how to get it to 100% renewables. Yeah. That's the endless discussion. And if you say, well, you know, let's discuss reliability. I mean, one group in Maine, not-for-profit NGO group, actually... W- was making statements, not about my book, but to ISO New England saying, you're all about reliability, but we're not. We want a clean grid, whether it's reliable or not. I'm like, are you guys out of your pee-picking mind? Especially in Maine. Like, that's yeah. like, Maine is not renowned for its temperate climate. <laughs> if you said that in, in California, where, to be honest, when I was living in, in, in Northern California, all you needed is a fireplace on a cold night. I mean, it didn't mm-hmm. freeze, but once every three years. And you could say, well, we don't need reliability. We just need, we just need to clean. But, but it, people in Maine saying that is, is, mm-hmm. is, is completely bizarre. Yeah, that's, that's very surprising. What, what was the response from the chapter of the Sierra Club you talked to? That sounds like a very fascinating place to go give your spiel. Well, actually, it was pretty positive because the thing is that when I'm talking about the grid and I'm talking about the different auctions and how they go and the clearing price and all this, this is all new information to most people, Mm. totally new information. I mean, like if I were to go there and say, you know, nuclear has doesn't put out any nuclear has a beautiful profile in terms of low greenhouse gas Mm -hmm. emissions. They... That wouldn't be new information. They might reject the information, but it wouldn't be the first time they'd ever heard it. Right. But when I'm talking about the grid, for many people, it's the first time they've ever heard it. They're like, oh, wait a minute. You're saying that you could a power plant could bid in at zero cents per kilowatt hour. And then if the clearing price is 40 cents per kilowatt hour, they get the clearing price instead of what they bid in. And I say, yeah, that's that's it. If the highest price power plant on the grid bid in at 40 cents per kilowatt hour, every plant that's on the grid at that time gets the 40 cents. 
And they're going like, well, why? You know, so what I'm trying to say is this is, uh, there's not an answer to that one, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> but the thing is that it's all new. And so to some extent, because people know so little about the grid, I've been a little bit protected from, from attacks on what I said because people are trying so hard to follow it because it's mm-hmm. all new. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. They're sort of, as I was when I read the book, like bowled over by the complexity of how this is run. I mean, we so take for granted the grid, but I live in California now, and I can't really take it for granted anymore because it's become so fragile. Like that's, I mean, there are people in California who will likely experience energy poverty at bad times, not that it's ever a good time to experience energy poverty, probably within the next five to 10 years, if things keep going the way that they're going, especially if Diablo Canyon closes, which I hope it doesn't. And I am, of course, fighting for it to stay open. But that sort of brings me to the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is you and I, the first time we talked about this, it was basically right after the Texas blackouts. And that had changed a lot of the energy conversation about the grid almost overnight. You know, I mean, my father lives in Alpine, so I was getting like, I was very worried about what was happening there. You know, um, when I went out to visit him a few months later in June, people were still talking about the blackouts. Oh, you know? it's, a, it's a very frightening event. Yeah. Um, and, a lot of people died. And right now we are on the precipice of potentially another energy crisis. And I was wondering what you're paying attention to now and what you're seeing. Uh, well, I'm, I'm paying attention to some extent to the, the discussions around, around, around coal and natural gas. I mean, I'm mm. always paying attention to nuclear. But the thing is that we have, the United States has immense quantities of coal. Mm -hmm. And yet we're having coal shortages because we haven't been digging it up, you know, leave it in the ground and all that. Mm -hmm. And I'm also concerned with whether the fracking revolution is going to hit a hard stop just when we need it to get bigger. And I, I, I don't, I don't really, I, one of the things about my book is I try very hard to talk about the grid as it is, the grid that's there. Mm-hmm. And I try not to project into the future too much. But it, it, I don't think it's too much of a projection into the future to say that things could get a very difficult in the United States also with uh, coal and natural gas issues. Mm -hmm. We only have the pipelines we have. It's hard to build more if we're building anymore because of, yeah, because of environmental concerns. Yeah. Yeah. And we may find more natural gas, but you know, the, the fracking, the wells for fracking, have a very short life expectancy. You have to keep drilling. They're not like the famous wells of the of the Texas oil fields, you know, which were just like gushers or something. Yeah, they, gargantuan. They, 
Yeah. I mean, that's a, I think that's the whole premise of Beverly Hillbillies, right? Is that the father accidentally shoots the ground and oil spews up everywhere. And that's how they yes. get rich and yes. move to Beverly yes. Hills. Yeah. That, that, that is, uh, well, it's, it was almost like that. I mean, people ha- had no idea what they were going to encounter until their whole rig flew up into the air, you know? And, oh, gosh, there's a lot of oil down there. Now, mm-hmm. uh, now we're a lot better at knowing how much there is and, 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 and controlling flow and all that. But you understand that with fracking, you go into a, a formation of shale that, that doesn't have a lot of holes in it. It's not as porous as the sandstones and so forth that you have in, in, in other parts of the oil world. And so it doesn't have as much natural gas per cubic foot. And so the well has a tendency to, to run out earlier. Mm-hmm. And you have to keep drilling new wells, refracking wells. It's, if, if you went to a traditional area of oil and gas production, and they were fracking and they were shooting steam down the well and so forth. They say, well, we're on the secondary level now. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we got all the oil that could come out sort of naturally due to the pressure underground. And now we're, we're, we're pushing it out with steam. We're pushing it out with CO2. We're pushing it out with, uh, you know, uh, water or, 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 or fracking, opening more passageways for it. And so it's all like it's secondary and, and, and fracking is like, oh, you can do secondary more places. And I, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm getting a little beyond myself here, but I just, I just want to say that I, I worry about, I worry about the longevity of, of, of the fracking areas. Yeah. Yeah. I read a recent piece in financial times about perhaps things in North Dakota slowly petering out in terms of what we can expect from fracking wells, et cetera. I mean, I think there's still some hopes in like the Permian Basin in which overlaps both Texas and New Mexico, but we'll see. I mean, this is sort of the problem, right? Where we're having fanciful conversations about energy publicly, but we aren't having conversations that are interested in grid fundamentals and how we keep developed industrial society running. You know, this is something that the rhetoric of climate crisis has done for RTOs in the renewable industry is that it has given them a get out of jail free card where no one really has any questions about the downstream effects of what they're doing or how they're implemented or what their usefulness is. And so now we find ourselves worried about whether we uh, have enough coal. on the yes. grid, which isn't a place. I mean, I'm thankful for every piece of fossil fuel that's ever been burnt because that's how we got to where we are now. And there's much to be grateful for, but having a conversation about whether we have enough coal isn't a place I want to be. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. And, 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 and the other thing about being grateful for fossil fuels is that I, I remember I was, uh, visiting North Carolina and I was, I was, I was, we were doing a lot of hiking and we were hiking around many beautiful areas Mm -hmm. and a lot of waterfalls. Mm. You know, if you're in the right area, 
I guess it's the the fall line or something where where mm. you know things are are actually the the areas between the highlands and the and 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 the coastal plain and there's a lot of waterfalls. It's very beautiful, and uh, it occurred to me to be very grateful for burning coal because otherwise all those waterfalls will be hydro dams. Mm-hmm. You see, and instead. They're very beautiful, and I can hike around them. And I mean, mm. Maybe that's selfish. Maybe selfish people want to hike in beautiful areas, while other people want to save the planet by not burning coal. I, 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 I just feel like it—it has it, got to be a planet that is has some wild areas, you know, eco-modernism and all that. And, and I, of course, I much prefer to see nuclear. Don't get me wrong. Oh, I, yeah, of course. I mean, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I think that's true. I think, to me, what... I, I'll just say this now, and I guess I'll, I'll wrap it up by saying this, is that reading your book for me was a life-changing experience. Wow. <laughs> because it gave me insight into how basic energy systems work in America and created a whole vein of historical investigation about energy policy and the structure of the grid and industrial development that now takes up a large portion of my time and has required me scavenging sometimes very out of print books to do so, but also because it gave me a sense of gratitude for what we've achieved as a society and why taking care of something like the grid is an important act of stewardship for succeeding generations. And that is not something I felt quite as powerfully or understood as deeply until I read your work. Yes, I think people tend to think that we can manipulate the grid all kinds of ways and it's still gonna be just fine because it's always been just fine. But actually, it isn't that hard to get yourself into a situation where there's situation where there's rolling blackouts. Mm-hmm. And it's not that hard to get into a situation where most upper middle class people want to have a, a generator on, on at their at their house. And you know, the, the, this is not, you know, in other words, they can afford it. That's what I, I yeah, you know, of course. maybe yeah. everybody would want one, but they're not they're not inexpensive objects in, 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 in general. And they're not all that expensive either, I guess. But uh, yeah, I, I really wanted people to 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 look at this and, and it was really it was a hard book to write. I, mm-hmm. I called it the book that ate Meredith because I kept, <laughs> I, I just kept coming up with more and more things that I had to put in there. And and I, and, and as you can tell, I also made a lot of decisions not to put in, mm-hmm. or not to put in the independent market monitors and and so forth because I, you know. Every one would have been a, a, a major research project to show that it wasn't doing any good. Mm-hmm. And so what you do is you follow the things that are affecting things. And if someone asks you, why didn't you put in that? You can always say, well, because they don't have much effect. Or you could say, wait till my next book. Which I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, but actually, I'm not sure I'm going to write a next book about it. I mean, I'm, I am a grandmother and I, I do write, but I mean, I'm just sort of like, this was a, an amazing amount of effort to write this book. Yeah, absolutely. Stunning. 
Absolutely. I forgot, I don't think I told you this. I've told you this, but my uh, wife would sometimes read it over my shoulder and it would make her so mad that she couldn't sleep. And she called it, she started calling it the hell book. She was like, are you still reading that hell book? <laughs> um, because she was like, why don't people just take care of things? So on that note, I would like to say, where can people find you if they want okay. to uh, find your book or find you? Okay, you can find my book on Amazon and Shorting the Grid, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid. And you can find me all over the place if you know my name, which is Meredith Angwin, M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H-A-N-A-N-G-W-I-N, A-N-G-W-I-N. It's a Cornish name. It's my husband's name, of course, but it's it's kind of an unusual name, but it's it's Cornish. He comes from a mining family, as a matter of fact. At at any rate, um, and you can find me at Meredith Angwin on Twitter. You can write me at Meredith Angwin, all one word, at Gmail. You can find uh, my website at MeredithAngwin.com. Let me see other ways you can find me. I, I mean, I'm also as Meredith Angwin on, on LinkedIn and, mm-hmm. you know, Facebook. And, but, but on Facebook, it's a little touchy because what you want to do is go to Meredith Angwin author on Facebook. Right. Otherwise, you'll see a lot of pictures of my grandkids, which is perfectly lovely. They're lovely grandkids. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, assuming that you want to learn about the grid, you go to Meredith Angwin author. That's right. Okay. Well, Meredith, thank you so much for joining me. This was a wonderful time. And listeners, as ever, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. Till next time. Thank you.